Welcome to Christian Life Academy. We're working our way through the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. We are in chapter 3 of God's decree. And uh, we are working through the different paragraphs. We finished paragraph 4 last week. Uh, so today we're moving on to paragraph 5. And let's start by reading the paragraph. Now, first, I guess I should just point out that we're still working through this section, uh, the specific decree of predestination to eternal life. And then we talked, we're in the is positive outworking the election of those predestinated. That's where we're at right now, the election of those predestinated. And then the gracious basis of that election, that's paragraph 5. So you can see just from the title of the, uh, of the, the outline of where we're at that obviously uh, what, they, what the writers recognized was that the thing people would have a challenge with is um, election and predestination. And, of course, that completely ties in with free will. And the questions being is that people feel like that they have control of their own destinies and they want to believe they have control of their own destinies. And then to some extent, then they don't want to believe that they have control of their own destinies because the implications are pretty significant no matter which way you think. So that's why they took some time to explain in these uh, paragraphs the specifics that the Scripture teach about predestination and uh, free will. And again, we also have another chapter that gets into more depth on free will, so we will be looking at that. Uh, But let's start with paragraph 5 here, the gracious basis of election. Those of mankind that are predestinated to life, God, before the foundation of the world was laid according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without any other thing in the creature as a condition of cause of or cause moving him thereunto. Now that again sounds a little bit uh, fancy, but uh, nonetheless, the point here are pretty significant. God predestinated the elect before creation, before time itself. So it's, it's making that statement. We've already read verses that talked about that. We're going to read some more verses that talk about that or show that. But the idea is, is that God did decide this. He predestinated those who would be saved before he even created time. This was part of his decree. This is his decree. His decree of what is going to happen and how it was going to happen. He had decided it before it happened. God has not revealed to us who the elect are. It is his secret counsel. So in other words, his own counsel is who decided who the elect were. We do not know who the elect were. No one knows who the elect are. Anyone who says they know who the elect are is wrong. They're wrong. That's blasphemy. The scriptures tell us clearly that they're only known to God. They are not known to us. Christ knows he is God. He specifically stated, in fact, last week we read a verse where he specifically said that he knows who the Father has given to him. He knows who his sheep are. We see that verse as well. So God hasn't revealed it to us. There's no list. We don't get an email. The elders are not privy to something say, okay, this is who the people are that are actually elect in the church, and this is who isn't elect. No, it's not the way it is. It is only known to God. We talked about last week the the idea that uh, we can't truly know someone's heart. Remember, I was talking about that. We talked about that was specifically when I was talking about someone who seems to fall away from the faith. Right? They move away from the faith. They could they could actually claim they are not saved, or maybe they don't. Maybe they just fall into sin. Uh, but the truth is, is that we don't know their heart. We don't know their heart. So is someone who says, I'm not saved, I was another Christian, I was never a Christian, that's not real, are they actually saved? Could be. Are they actually not saved? Could be. Who knows? God. God knows. Now, we see all kinds of examples in Scripture, all kinds of examples. For all kinds of subjects, 
Not just this question of eternal life or of election. Not just there, but we see lots of examples in scriptures of the fruits of things, right? So we certainly see these different passages of scripture that tell us the fruits of a believer. What a believer is like, who a believer is. So we see these things. But those are not conclusive proofs. Why? Well, someone that's, that's fallen to a stronghold of sin, they've, they've definitely, they're in sin, they're not living for Christ, and they're rebellious, they don't want to repent from that sin, you don't see those fruit. Are you with me on this? You don't see them. Does that mean they're, still, they're not saved then? No. Does it, in fact, the Scripture doesn't say that. We never see a place where the Scripture says, absolutely, if someone doesn't do this, then they're not a believer. Not there. Not there. Can't know their heart. Can't know their heart. Who would have guessed that the thief on the cross, cross next to Christ, was elect before then? You with me on this? Who would have known? Who would have known, if, as, the, as the new church, the believers in the new church, who would have thought that the greatest persecutor of Christians, Paul, was elect? See what I mean, right? You wouldn't have known, because you can't go by their actions. You can't go by what they do and how they talk. And, what, and this is the same for us. Look, you could know somebody who uh, swears. They live a rough life. They do a lot of things you don't think they should do, and they're saved. Saved. Yeah, but wait a minute. You know, what if they do this? They can't be saved if they do this. <laughs> be careful. Look at the scriptures. See what the scriptures say. We often forget about the fact that the letters written to the churches by Paul, his epistles that he wrote, are dealing with huge issues. Are they not? Some don't seem as big to us. Others seem like a church had this going on. Yes, churches had these things going on. And to us, they would be absolutely like unbelievable that a church would have some of the stuff going on that we see. But yet, he writes to them calling them brothers and sisters and the beloved, doesn't he? He writes to them acknowledging that they are believers. But they're not doing the right thing. And most of the time, he doesn't hit them with the hammer. He's gentle. He uses the hook, shepherds them, tries to pull them into safety, pull them into the path they should be on. You see what I mean? And so those who are listening on Sermon Audio, I'm moving my hands as if I'm holding a shepherd's crook. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? In other words, we don't know. Don't put yourself in a position where you, are, you think that you know who is saved. Okay? Now, caveat. There are those who can be clearly identified as non-believers. Now, can God miraculously save them? Absolutely. But it's very clear in the New Testament that when someone is called anathema, when they are marked by the church, they are set aside for destruction. That means that they are not the elect. They're not the elect. This is why this is a very serious thing for a church to do this, for a church to mark someone. We have had to do that on a couple of occasions. We have actually had to mark individuals. And as you talk to other pastors and elders about this, which I have, 
who've known about it and ask a question about it, I've asked them, have you ever seen a church or been in a church where someone was marked? Have you ever had to mark one? And, you know, their answer is almost always the same. It's almost like, like, it's almost like they, they talk about it quietly because it's such a huge deal. No, we, we have, praise God, we have never had to do that. Because they know this is a big deal. This is not a little deal. This isn't removing somebody from membership. Are you with me on this? This isn't a disciplinary move. This is an identity move. This is an identity move. So when the church moves to mark somebody, they are not marking somebody to say, we don't think this person is a believer or they're in sin, they need to repent. They're being marked because they clearly are an unbeliever set aside for instruction. And in fact, in every case I've ever heard of, they're marked because they are seeking to cause problems in the church. They're destructive to the church. And I can tell you, at least one pastor that I know of, who when somebody came into the church and they found out that they were marked, they made it clear to that person they weren't welcome to come to their church. Why? That's very serious. It doesn't really get much more serious than that. Someone that's been removed from another membership of another church? Okay. What happened? Did you repent? Have you made it right? Now, somebody comes here, and they've been removed from membership of a church, and they want to join this church, let's say, right? Before we accept them into membership, that is a question in the membership application. Are you under discipline from another church? And then if they say they are, then we've got to find out what happened. And we're going to ask them if they've repented. Have they made it right? We're going to have to go through a process. Do you understand what I'm saying? Why? Because they should have made this right. They should have repented. Now, Obviously, what happens, and this is the difficulty, is that sometimes a church will remove somebody from membership, and they shouldn't have, because they did it for an unscriptural reason. Are you with me? So, for instance, this is an example. I don't know somebody that got removed from a church for doing this, but let's say women wearing dresses. Okay? You have to go to the ones that are really obvious, right? You've got to go to the ones that are a big deal. So, there are churches, I know of churches, in the area that have a requirement that the women wear dresses to church, or skirts. They may not wear pants. So if someone stops doing that and they start wearing pants, and that person then gets removed from membership for wearing a dress or a skirt, do you think that we're going to say that they had to repent from that? We're not going to say that. What we're going to say is is that that church was taking additional non-scriptural, non-scripturally justified requirements and putting them on a believer that they had no authority to do so. They don't have the authority to do that. So, same thing holds for alcohol. There are churches that say you can't drop, drink a drop of alcohol as a believer. Can't do it. If you want to be a member of this church, you commit that you will never have a drink. You will completely abstain. So if someone, they find, oh, they see somebody at uh, Buffalo Wild Wings or E.G. Nick's or something, they see somebody, and they see them drinking. And then they remove them from disciplinary reasons, from the church membership, because they drank would we consider that scriptural for them to take that stance? We wouldn't. We wouldn't. So that does get tricky. It's not like hardly ever is it that clear cut. (laughs) Hardly ever is it that clear cut. For instance, somebody gets removed because they're being divisive. Okay, so were they? Were they not? Was it a false accusation? Now that becomes difficult. And the truth is, is that 
without being able to know for sure one way or the other, we're probably going to go with what the other church has decided. Why? Are, are we going to be a court? That we have to have all the witnesses come so that we can go through the evidence to decide if someone has actually committed divisiveness? Or are we going to trust the church that Christ has established to actually make that decision? So here's the key. Before you actually become divisive in your church, you better bring it up to the elders. And if the elders don't agree with you, you better leave. Because once you're under, once you're under discipline, you have to repent in order for that to be lifted. That's the point of discipline. Has to happen. So if somebody says, well, I have a different conviction. I think that it's okay to watch TV. But the church says it's not okay to watch TV. That doesn't even sound right anymore, right? People don't even know. Like the girls are like, TV? What do you mean by TV? Well, my parents, oh, that's what they call the display. Where we stream, you know. <laughs> Whatever. You see what I'm saying, right? So if a church has it, churches have had that rule, by the way. And you said, I'm going to watch it anyway. And then you watch it and you're like, you know what? I watched it and I watched some really good stuff. And it was really informative. It was, I was watching documentaries. And it was really good, and it wasn't bad. And so then you start telling other people in church, you know, I think they're wrong on this. I think that we should all start to watch these things because they're really good. That's divisiveness. That's divisiveness. Was the rule a good rule from the church? No, it wasn't a good rule. But if you seek to undermine the rule and the authority of the church by suggesting that the rules the church follows are the wrong rules without going to the elders and actually telling them you have a disagreement and see if you can work that out, you're wrong. You're wrong. You can't do that. So it gets tricky. It gets tricky. So can we know because somebody is under discipline from another church that they're a believer or non-believer? No. How can we know that? We can't know that. God knows that in the counsel of his secret, his secret counsel. They're the only ones that know. So you'd say, well, if someone got removed from their church because they wore pants to a work day, heard of it happening, by the way, if someone got removed from their church because they wore pants to a work day, that doesn't sound like sin. doesn't sound like the, an unbeliever. You understand what I'm saying? Now, you could question, well, if they knew that that was the church's stance and they became a member of the church and the church had a work day, shouldn't they have asked the question before they went to the work day if they could wear pants? Mm, good argument there, too. You see why it's really tricky? <laughs> it's not, this is not easy stuff. This is hard. But this part isn't hard. Because the answer is clearly, we don't know. Okay? We ask questions. Someone wants to join the church, say they're a believer. We ask them to tell their testimony. I'm just going to tell you right now. I, okay. So, Brand says I've been here quite as long. So, Paul, I'm going to ask you, of all the people we've talked to that want to be members, what percent would you say have a clear, unambiguous testimony? Of the ones, you know, all the, you know, there's been a lot of people. Some come gone, you know. What do you think? 50, 60%. You understand what he's saying, right? 50, 60% have a clear testimony. The others don't. So what do we have to do? We have to ask questions, right? We have to probe them a little bit. Sometimes people are nervous, right? Sometimes they don't know how to put it into words, right? Or they don't use the terms that we're used to. They have a little different term or something like that. This happens. This is the way it is. So we have to kind of ask a lot and try to seek out to know if they're a believer. But we still make mistakes. 
Somebody can give us the right answers that they know we want to hear, and it's not true. This is how we end up getting to the point where someone is removed from membership and marked. They weren't a member. Because what they said was believable. It was a lie. We don't know who the elect are. God knows. So be careful about judging someone because you, you, you don't know, right? You can say, I don't think, doesn't seem like, not so sure. Any of those terms or other terms that are, show that you're not 100% positive if someone's a believer or not a believer because only God knows. Okay? Does that make sense? So what does that mean for you in reality? The reality is we probably should be more gracious. Right? I mean, do you know anybody who says they're a Christian who you don't think they act like they should? Like anybody. I mean, yes, right? <laughs> of course you do. Let's be careful. Don't be so quick to judge them if they're a believer or not because they don't do what you think they should do. And if you say, well, yes, but God's word says that we should be this way and a Christian should be this way and that Christians would, will, will show their love and they will do all these things. Absolutely true. So why don't you do it this way? When you've perfected that, start judging other people. Fair enough? Because you're not there. None of us are there. None of us are there. We have to show grace. You know, everyone is at a different place than you are in their spiritual growth, right? Everyone's at a different place. Some are ahead of you. Some are below you. They're all different. No one's exactly at the same place that you are. Why? And you know what? You, you can hear my teaching, the preaching, singing the worship songs. You could do all that today, and you could be now at a slightly different place, right? Because you learned something. You grew something a little bit. It meant more to you. It, it touched your soul, your heart a little bit more. You see what I'm saying, right? So everyone is growing. You go through the next day. You know, you're tomorrow. You're at work. You're at home. You're doing whatever you're doing. And whatever happens, things can happen that affect your spiritual growth, right? Let's be gracious. Let's be gracious to others and recognize that we're not there yet. And if we want them to be gracious to us, we probably need to be gracious to them. God chooses the elect by his pleasure, in his own will. He decides. Now that obviously reflects a few different things, but really the next statement reflects that the best man does nothing to earn or deserve this grace. It's God's will for who is elect. It is nothing that you do. Nothing. Now the implications of this are greater than the statement sounds. Okay, so the statement sounds pretty clear. Like, So if you understand you and Calvin's tulip, which, by the way, Calvin didn't call it tulip. That was after that when they kind of identified what his core beliefs or teachings were that, that they came up with tulip. Anyway, unconditional election, that's the you in tulip. If you understand that, at least, I hope that everyone here understands it at least slightly, because we have talked about it a quite a bit, unconditional election. Unconditional election means that there are no conditions under which you receive election. Right, now, that's pretty simple. It's kind of using the same words to describe it, which is 
not necessarily a good definition. But it's that man does nothing to earn or deserve this grace, right? In other words, for instance, man does not have to do uh, all the sacraments, right? Roman Catholic, think about it that way. Doesn't have to do all those seven sacraments in order to be elect. Man does not have to um, spend so many years of his life or her life in prayer to receive election. Nor does man, or can man, or woman, of course, every time I say that, you can think the same thing, nor can they, through a prayer, receive God's grace. Hmm. See, the act of salvation for someone who does not believe in unconditional election, does not believe that it's God's grace that saves them, but believes that it's their own free will and they've done it, that is completely works salvation. It is by your works, your actions, that you get saved, not God's grace, not God's will. And that's where the rubber meets the road. And we talked about this last week and the week before, about how many conditions have to be met in order for you to actually get to the point where you actually are compelled, because of the guilt, to repent and believe. Hearing the gospel, having access to the word, all those things, right? We, talked, we don't need to beat it up again. Talked about them already. That is certainly true for this, right? We're talking about the same thing here. Man does nothing to earn or deserve this grace. It's not that, you know, well, if they go to church six times and they visit one Wednesday night or a Sunday school, boom. They can get saved. No. It doesn't work that way. What was the prerequisites for the thief on the cross? Did he do anything other than believe and repented? If you've never heard of I've heard some messages on the thief on the cross and just the words that he used. And let me tell you, some of the scholars, biblical scholars, can do a deep dive on that. But the idea of them saying, he has done nothing. We're guilty. He's done nothing. That's significant. Because that, he's saying, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. He's recognizing that he's a sinner. Thief on the cross. Hmm? We won't go down that path too far. We hit him so often anyway. Great example, though. Right? In the scripture for a reason. Man doesn't do anything to deserve this. There's nothing that we do. So it's not a matter of how much you attend church. It's not a matter of if you dress up. It's not a matter of if you carry your Bible. It's not a matter of how much you pray. It's none of those things. It's God's will. So this is why it's so shocking sometimes to some believers, hopefully not to you, hopefully not to most, that someone who is a real sinner gets saved. How can that, that person, they deserve to go to hell. They are such a bad sinner. I can't believe God would save them. I'm not sure if they're saved. You ever heard someone say that? I have. That's unbelievable. Really? Isn't it? Wouldn't you feel like the, the worse the person is and they get saved, the more glory God should receive for that? Proving that he can save the worst sinners? Oh. Alice Cooper. Brought him up last time, last week, right? He's not the only one. There's a lot of preachers out there, evangelists out there today that came from unbelievable bad backgrounds. We were doing a lot of bad things. Some murderers. Radically saved. To God's glory. What was that? John Newton. 
slaver. Right? Radically saved. So we have to remember that this is God's grace that does this. It is not based on someone's works. Man cannot do anything to deserve this grace. He can't. There's nothing that we can do that would merit God saying, well, okay, now you're going to get saved. Even our best attempts as non-believers are as filthy rags. Why? Because they're a sinner doing them. It's a sinner doing them. That's why. So, if you've ever had that question, let me just make sure you understand that that's the answer. So what's the question? This is like Jeopardy. I give the answer and then no. So, it's, it's the question of how is it that God can command for us to do something? Right? Like feed the hungry. Care for the poor. Hmm? But when a believer does it, that would be obedience to God. But when an unbeliever does it, it's still sin. You ever thought about that? How is that? I mean, because there's, there's people that are definitely philanthropists, right? I mean, they definitely help other people. In fact, they, they kind of view this as a big thing in their life, that they, they think you should help other people. You, you, I mean, obviously, you kinda, I, mean, I assume everybody's ran into people like that, or you've heard of people like that, or you've seen people in action like that who are not believers. They could be atheists, but they think that they should help their fellow man. A lot of times you hear those words, right? Sometimes you don't. But you understand what I'm saying, right? We should, uh, the measure of someone is what, how they treat other people. So I'm going to help people. You know, I'm going to go to the soup kitchen every month, whatever. I mean, they're going to do something that we're trying to help people, right? I'm going to give money to people I see on the street. I'm going to do whatever. How is it that that is not viewed as God, by God as an act of righteousness, and yet a believer can do it, and it is? Because they're a sinner. That's why. Because they're a sinner. That act for them does not make up for their sin. They are still viewed by God as sinners, worthy of death. Worthy of death. Okay. We cannot take credit for choosing Christ. We only receive Christ because predestinated, because God predestinated us and begins the process of initi- by initiating in our hearts. And, of course, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, turning our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. We'll see a verse in a second about that. But you understand the concept here. We cannot take credit for choosing Christ. And again, those who would say, oh no, it's all man. You know, God decided everything else in existence except for if we accept salvation. And that's all man making his own decision. Well, that makes man now in a completely different place. It gives him credit for choosing Christ. We cannot receive credit for that. Why? We only get it because he predestinated us and begins the process by initiating in our hearts. Scriptures are very clear about this. Those are verses that have to be overlooked by those who teach otherwise. They can't go down that path. They'll read them right past them. Can't preach on them. Why? Well, because it kind of blows a big hole in their belief that it's all up to man, not up to God. And then that really starts to swirl out of control like a tornado. As soon as you start to say, well, if man does make that decision, how much of the process is he also in control over? Or was it all God that got him to the point that he made that decision? You with me? 
right? So why, who then decides whether they get put in this position that the Holy Spirit changes their heart and they hear the gospel and they repent? That, is that God? Well, yes, that's God. You can't avoid it. The scriptures tell us this. So if that is God, guess who actually chose? God. Not the person. Let's read some verses. Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 4, 9, and 11. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Verse 9. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself. Verse 11. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Those are very hard verses to get around. Basically, God chose us. He predestinated us, and he did it according to his will. It does not say that he did it according to our will. He did it according to his will. Romans 8.30, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Well, there it all is. Romans 8.30, you can't get around that verse either. How does this start? In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to what we like. I'm sorry. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Who started that process? Well, it says right here, moreover, whom he did predestinate. That sounds like, first of all, God started the process by deciding ahead of time. In fact, that's actually what it says. Then what the next thing it says, he called them. Called them. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. You notice that God is doing all the actions there? God's doing all the actions, not the person. 2 Timothy 1.9 who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Jesus Christ before the world began. Very clear. Called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. In other words, not because man said a prayer. God did not call you because you said the magic words. It's not how it works. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. So why did he call you? For his purpose and grace. Not because you deserved it. Not because you did anything, including saying the magic words. Seeing the light. Whatever. Dream. Heard all these things. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this. God hath not appointed us to wrath. Has God appointed others to wrath? He has. Not us. Romans 9.13 and 16 As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Let me read that verse again. Romans 9, 16. You got an Armenian friend? 
You got a friend who believes all free, it's all free will, it's nothing to do with God? Romans 9, 16. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. It is not what a person does because they willed it, because they wanted it to be that way. This verse directly contradicts that. It's not that. Ephesians 2, 5 and 12. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. No, but I'm going to read verse 12 in a second, but notice what that says. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us, that means made alive, quickened us together with Christ. Verse 12. That at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no help, and without God in the world. In other words, you're not saved. You're outside. Who made you alive? Yourself? When you declared it? No. He quickens us. He makes us alive. Praise God. Paragraph 6. So, this was the gracious basis of election. Here's the effectual execution of election. Paragraph 6. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so he hath, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. Pause for a second. This is exactly what I've been talking about, isn't it? As God has appointed the elect unto glory... He has, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. In other words, he has already planned before, foreordained, what was going to happen so that someone would be saved. He's foreordained the means. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ. They are effectually called unto faith in Christ. By his Spirit, working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ or effectually called justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. All right, so this is what salvation is. All of these words, we're going to break them down, but this is, this is salvation. And if you're familiar with the Ordo Salutis or the Order of Salvation, you see that here as well. If you're not, that poster on the back wall, Ordo Salutis, got green, mostly green there, but it shows you what the Order of Salvation is, how it happens, but this lays it out right here. All right, so first we're going to recognize their divine appointment. So this is the first part that I just mentioned. I reread that part right there, actually, that first clause in this paragraph. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so he hath, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. In other words, the accomplishing of God's decree of election is glorification, and, the, and there are means or ways that this is accomplished. So, when you were saved, it wasn't like all of a sudden, boop, God flipped the switch, and you were saved. You didn't, you didn't have to have any of those things because you were just saved then, right? Understandably, you had to hear the gospel. You had to hear the gospel. 
You had to hear that from, I'm not saying how you heard it, because there's lots of ways for that to happen, but you had to hear the gospel. God does not just decree what is to happen. His decrees, his decree, he decrees the plan that will carry his will out. So, we talk about God's decree and that everything that happens is a part of his decree, but it is not that God is decreeing results. Are, are you with me on this? So, it's not that just that God says, well, uh, Christ is going to die on the cross. So, let's hope that all works out. It's not the way it is. God planned all the things. We read the verses last week about how Pontius Pilate, the high priest, the Gentiles, the Jews, they all conspired together for Christ to die on the cross. And we read last week is God made that happen. Scriptures tell us directly that God put them all in those places, had them do what they did, so that his will with Christ dying on the cross would be accomplished. Now, if you haven't figured this out, I just want to make sure that we do a little reality check here. If you haven't figured this out, that means that all of their actions were also his will. Do you see what I'm saying? In other words, Pontius Pilate had to say, crucify him. Take him and crucify him. Why? That was part of God's will. That was part of God's will. And I understand. Here's what will happen. Someone who believes that man makes all his own decision about salvation, it's not God's will. He just happens to make it. That means that anything else, that they have to kind of go down the same path. Like they have to get to this point where man has free will to do whatever he wants to do. So then you say, well, what about the verses that it says directly that God put them in place to crucify Christ? That Judas had to betray Christ that Pontius Pilate had to say to crucify him. All that had to happen in order for God's will to be accomplished. Here's what they'll say. Well, that's just how it worked out. It could have been somebody else. It could have happened later. It could have been another time. Do you see what I mean? Well, that's a straw man argument. That's a non-existent reality. The reality is, is that what happened was exactly according to God's plan and his will, and that's how it was carried out. He did plan to have someone betray him. Christ told the apostles that. The betrayer was right with him. Told him that. One of you will betray me. Remember that? That's actually the night that he was betrayed. But he said it before that too. We read that verse last week. So if you say, well, no, you know, they still made the decisions to do those things. Okay. Then that would be denying directly the scriptures. Because the scriptures clearly say that God did plan it. We see a lot of descriptions about the end of the world, don't we? We see a lot. Is that you think that God's will is that just he hopes that's the way it's going to work out? Or did he plan it? And this is the way it's going to work out. Now that, so, obviously, when we're talking about events in history, things that have happened in the past, it is much easier to accept that. Right? So like we talk about Christ dying on the cross and Pilate having to say crucify him and the priest having to you know, pay uh, Judas to betray him and then making these false accusations against him and all these things that, okay, well, history, yeah, that had to happen because that was a biggie. Okay, that is a biggie. I mean, there's no question. 
that's the biggest biggie, for a matter of fact. But that's true. That's absolutely true. But is God in less control of other things? He's still in control. So here's what that means. You should be more content. You should be more content. Because when things don't go life and right in life, and is there anybody that had a perfect week? I mean, I would really like to know if somebody had a per where nothing went wrong. Everything went exactly how you hoped it would go. It was perfect. What was that? That would definitely make me, I would, I would actually probably sin then because I would be so jealous. No, no, of course it didn't. It doesn't. In fact, honestly, I mean, aren't you a little bit surprised when you do something and it goes really well? <laughs> You're kind of like, wow, that went good. You're happy because that went good. And most of the time it doesn't, right? Things happen. People disappoint you. People don't treat you right. Things break. You get hurt. You make a mistake. This happens all the time, right? And you can get angry about those things. Your flesh wants you to get angry about those things. That's that human nature. But your spirit doesn't. The Holy Spirit does not want you to be angry. The Holy Spirit wants you to be content and trust that God's in charge, regardless of how hard that is. And it's very hard. It's very hard. We see multiple examples in the scripture of individuals that were put through unbelievable trials. And the examples we see are those who came through the trials well. Job. Job went through immense trials, did he not? How about Joseph? Did Joseph not go through immense trials? Did Joseph turn his back on God? No, he didn't. By the way, do you think Joseph was happy when he got thrown in prison? Do you think Joseph was happy when he got thrown in the pit and then sold into slavery? Do you think he, he was not happy? Why? He was still a human. He still had emotions like you do and like I do. And he could have had some despair. We don't, that's not the focus of the story, is it? The focus of the story is how God acts and moves and his will is carried out. You could not anticipate that it was, things were going to develop the way that they were, could you? I mean, if you're Joseph and your brothers hate you and they throw you into a pit and they sell you as a slave, could you anticipate that you're going to bail out your family at some point? Would you have believed that you're going to be the second in command of Egypt? Now, you had a dream. You think you didn't question the dream? Maybe I got that dream wrong. Maybe I wasn't thinking right about that dream. Maybe that dream was about something else. Can you see that this would be the case? It could have been. Was it? We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us that. Why? Because that's not important. The Scripture tells us what's important. It's not what's important is not what's between the lines. What's important is what's in the lines. And what's in the lines is what Joseph did. He did not turn his back on God, did he? He did not succumb to act to Potiphar's wife. He did not say, well, you know what? When in Egypt, do as the Egyptians. No, he didn't do that. Right? How long was it? Let's see who's paying attention, Brent. How long was it? 
between when the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer were given until Joseph was brought before Pharaoh to interpret the dream. What do you say? You're not, you don't want to say. say th- three years? Three days. What do you say? Three years. What do you say? Two years? Anybody else? You ready, Brands? Anybody else? What do you got, guess? Yeah, two years. Okay, Brands? Two years. Two years! We don't need to focus on what happened to Joseph and what he was thinking during those two years, but you can bet he wasn't happy. He was in prison. But you know what it appears? That his being unhappy wasn't the focus, was it? Daniel. Daniel. Daniel, what are you doing? No, Daniel. Thrown in the lion's den. Do we see anything in Scripture that indicates that he was distraught about being thrown in the lion's den? Nothing. Nothing. Do you think he was a little anxious? He might have been. But the way that he should have been anxious is not knowing how this was going to end. Like, are they going to just gnaw on me? And I'm going to be awake for that? Or are they just going to kill me the first bite? Or what's going to happen here? I don't know. But you know what he easily could have been thinking? Hey, just like Paul said, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. Except he lived. He lived! You think, well, if I was Joseph, and I went through all that, ended up being second in command of Egypt, saved my family from all dying. Uh, I was Daniel. I went to the lion's bed den. The lions, you know, I'm petting the kitties. I get out. The king can't believe it. He forgives me. Everything is good, you know, all this stuff. And if I was them, I would be more content because I would know that, you know, God was still going to take care of me. Okay. The reason that these things are in the scriptures is so that we will know that. You say, well, yeah, but what if I'm being persecuted? Okay, first, none of you are being persecuted. You're not being persecuted. Don't, don't raise your life to the level of persecution. If you think that you're being persecuted, go to the New Testament and see what happened to the apostles. Then talk about persecution. Look at the early church in Europe. Look at the early church in England. Look at that history. See what persecution is. When 20,000, you know, at one fell swoop, 20,000 believers burned at the stake. Burned at the stake. That's persecution. Thrown in prison because they believed in Jesus Christ. That's persecution. Spending a night in jail because you drove recklessly, not persecution. Somebody calling you names because you're a Christian, not persecution. You know, the apostles warn us. Christ warns the apostles, you will be persecuted for my sake. There's no promise of prosperity for believers. There's no promise of that. And yet, we're still taught in scriptures to be content. We're still taught to be content. And that being content should begin with the knowledge 
that this is God's plan. If you're, you know, okay, so. All right, I guess you could say maybe 50% are probably my age or so. Okay, or older, maybe. Some of you are wondering which one you're in. But let's say, let's say you're, let's say you're older, that you're 50 or, let's say 45 and older. Let's just say that. Now, let's say 50, because really, 50 is good. Okay, so let's say 50. So if you're, you're like, where are you going with it? If you're, I'm getting there. If you, you know, eventually. If you're 50 or older, you know something is true. You don't heal as quick as you used to. Your body is sore than it used to be. Your joints aren't quite like they used to be. Your body doesn't do things that it used to do as well as it used to do them. There is a lot of things, like your hearing might not be as good, your eyesight might not be as good, your taste might not be as good, you might not have as much hair. I mean, all these things that happen to you as your body gets older, right? That th things that you're not perform your body isn't performing like it did when you were younger, right? If you've experienced that, those things you must be content with. Why? Because it's God's plan. Have you ever known anybody that's older that didn't have aching joints? I have. I've known people. Oh, yeah, no, I don't have any problems whatsoever. <laughs> You're jealous. Feel good for them. Like, man, I wish I felt like that. What's he doing different? You should be content. Why? Because you are exactly how God wants you to be at this moment. Why? It was his plan. It was his plan. We should be content in that. Now, being content does not mean that we then do nothing. That's not the same. We're still given many commands about how we're to live our lives, about things that we're to do, are we not? Many. So can we say, well, God's plan, then we shouldn't share the gospel. That's the most obvious one, right, related to what we're talking about. Should we not share the gospel? Because God's already chose anyway. God does not just decree what is to happen. He decrees the plan that will carry his will out. You know what that means? Somebody had to share the gospel. Somebody had to share the gospel. Now, very difficult for us to think outside of our own culture, right? This is true all the time. Very hard for us to think outside of our culture, outside of our reality, outside of where we live and how things are for us. Sometimes you get a glimpse, somebody tells you about some other culture or their experience with another culture, something like this. Or you personally experience some other culture, and so you see how people, they, different priorities, different ways of living, right? Things are different for them. And uh, it seems like the less what we would consider civilized people are, the uh, more different the culture, right? So tribes that are living in the jungle or whatever, you know, in the, in the uh, uh, remote areas, their culture would be significantly different from ours. Are you with me on this? Um, also true, like, I mean, obviously we know recently from experience from Jennifer spending too much in Scotland that the culture in Scotland is very different than our culture. Much more different than we actually anticipated. Like, shockingly different. And honestly, sounds way better. I'm just going to be honest. Sounds way better. See, we think that the way that things are for us here is the way it is everywhere in Western world. It's just not true. It's just not true. But regardless of the culture, someone had to share the gospel for you to get saved. 
for someone to get saved. They had to hear the gospel. The scriptures even tell us that if someone needs, in fact, our confession teaches this, if someone needs to hear the gospel because God has chosen them to be elect, he will provide a way for the gospel to get to them. So, you know, what about this tribe, you know, in the remote, on this island, and no one's been there? If God has chosen one of them to be his elect, the gospel will get there. Whether it's a missionary, a Bible in a, in a bottle, someone has a plane crash and they swim to the island, whatever it is, because God has ordained a plan that will carry out his will. It's not like someone is going to be, well, this person's elect, but, ah, man, you know what? I forgot to have somebody come across their path to share the gospel. They died. Oh, well, we'll scratch them out. Well, they get it anyway. It's not the way it works. His plan is all-encompassing. We have to recognize that his plan is all-encompassing. Does that make sense? We have to recognize that God's plan is going to be carried out because he has willed everything about it. And once you go down that path, once you accept that that's the case, that for someone to get saved, they had, it had to be part of God's plan. For Christ to die on the cross, it had to be part of God's plan. For all the things that happened that are prophesied in the Scripture and have already happened in the Scripture, that God had to cause those things to happen, you recognize God controls everything. The people in Hawaii that died were meant to die because God planned it. Well, yeah, but that's not fair. Those people were innocent people. Well, no, they weren't. Why? They're sinners. We deserve it too. There were probably some believers in that city. Right? There probably were. God still planned it. He, was, he didn't lose control. Oh, whoops, I should have put that fire out. That's not what happened. God was in control of it. We don't, we don't have this idea that God is, doesn't, you know, it can't be God because he only wants good things to happen. Look, the reality is, is that we've all sinned. We all deserve death. It's only his grace that gives us more life. It's only his grace that allows us to live beyond our initial birth. You're, you're worthy of death. So if God causes a tornado to hit somebody's house, if there's a car accident, they have a heart attack, it's his will. So you say, well, this guy, I know this guy, he was a runner, he was, a, you know, he had his heart checked every week, whatever. You know, I knew, my brother literally knew a guy who was a runner, cardiologist, had just gotten checked by another cardiologist, perfectly fine, died of a heart attack. Died of a heart attack. Like, all his numbers were perfect. How do you explain that? God's will. That's how, He could not have added a day to his life, no matter what he did, and he couldn't have taken a day away, no matter what he did. God's will. Once you accept that that's the case, it should be much, much easier to be content. Remind yourself, when this week, when something happens to you that you don't like, remind yourself that it's God's will and that he has commanded you to be content with it. And then for you to question why that happened, you're questioning God. That's the hard part. Look, I mean, I, I, for me too. Branch, you got that down pat yet? No. Everybody struggles, but you still should be trying. Does that make sense? You should still be trying to do that trying to be more like Christ, trying to be content and understand God is in control, his will is being done, and whatever has happened is part of his plan. What should you do? React the way he tells you to react. Do the things he tells you to do. And you know what? You're probably going to make a mistake. Part of his plan too. 
That's all we got time for. We're past time. Let's close a word of prayer.